are now listening to Digital Doorways, where our audience learns from our expert guests as we explore their experiences with branding, transformation, and change. Unlock the digital doorways and embark on a journey of knowledge and growth. Now here is our host, Blue Text founder, Jason Siegel. Welcome to another captivating episode of Digital Doorways, the podcast spotlighting business leaders who've expertly navigated change through branding and marketing. Today, we dive into the journey of Jim Weiss, chairman and founder of Real Chemistry, a driving force in healthcare innovation. Jim's visionary leadership steered Real Chemistry to a remarkable $550 million in annual revenue in record time, a testament to his transformative approach and innovation. Let's dive a little bit into his background. As chairman, Jim continues to help shape Real Chemistry's course, mentors, teams, and counsels tons of clients, tier one clients. He's turned challenges and opportunities, making Real Chemistry a leader in real-world data and tech-enabled solutions revolutionizing healthcare communications, operations, and the commercialization. Jim's impact now extends to his executive advisor role at New Mountain Capital, driving technology and life sciences synergy and investment board and advisory roles at biotech startups, life science and patient advocacy organizations, including the great American Cancer Society and the foundation of the National Institution of Health, otherwise known as NIH. Jim's journey began as a real biotech leader at the iconic Genentech, where data-driven technology-enabled solutions became his true hallmark. A pioneer in analytics and precision targeting, his work reshapes industries while promoting diversity and inclusion. Passion for education and innovation led to the White Center for Social Commerce and the Real Chemistry Emerging Insights Lab. Prepare for a journey through Jim Weiss's visionary world, uncovering insights, dedication, and innovation that truly define him. Stay tuned for an enlightening conversation on digital doorways. Thanks for joining the show today, Jim. Thanks, Jason. And I do really like the name of this thing. Um, I haven't walked through a digital doorway in a little while. So we'll see how that stories are also the ones that you can walk back out of. You don't right. want that door slamming behind you. Yeah, that'll be good. I don't <laughs> want to be like Tron. Yeah. Well, we know you're real busy and we really appreciate you joining us. This is a very prestigious conversation. I kind of want to dive into really the backstory. Can you walk us through the, your journey and how you came to found your own company back in 2001? Well, you know, it, it was sort of a not straight line journey. Um, you know, I think always I came from entrepreneurial roots. Uh, my dad was an optometrist in a small town who had his own practice and then grew a couple of other ones in the region. And then my mom took over our family business, which is an oil distributorship in northeastern Pennsylvania that involved, you know, big trucks and truck drivers and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I kind of grew up with the role models. So I don't know that I was ever meant to have a boss. Um, and with that, I ended up uh, ultimately working at, um, originally, as you mentioned, Genentech. Then I spent time 
at a multinational pharma company called Rome Palank Roar and came back to the California area to work at a startup innovation company in medical devices called Heartport that was ultimately sold to J&J. And when I, you know, kind of lost my position there as they integrated that company into J&J, I started to look at options to, I would call it consult till I found the next corporate thing and realized, no, I, I think there's opportunity to uh, work with many different partners um, in many different ways. So I like that variety um, and realized that, you know, maybe that consulting approach would be great. And, you know, it took a little time to get moving, you know, between the time of that sale to the 2001 decision to just go ahead with my own firm. And the firm's growth has been beyond impressive, as I mentioned in the opening, growing it to over $500 million in revenue. What motivated you in the early days to pivot your business strategy towards data, analytics, and digital? Well, you know, I had been taught um, at Genentech to follow the data to get to the right outcome. It was a mantra we heard a lot there um, back in the, you know, I would say kind of early, late 80s, but early 90s when I was there. And of course, that did lead to the first um, products in targeted cancer therapy, such as Herceptin and Rituxan and you know, you, you see those drugs, you know, setting the pace for the way cancer is treated today in a much more targeted way. So I think, you know, my view at that time was if we can apply all this technology to target drug development and discovery, could you do that in the communications and commercialization zone, um, making sure that you just hit the most precise targets. And one of the ways we did that a lot was through clinical trial recruitment. You know, are they set up and ready to go? Do they, will they put the right patients on it? You know, um, you know, if we kind of go into a market and do promotion, is this going to be something that turns into business? So I think working in house and, and all of that gave me a better perspective about what the customer needed. And I think as I developed my firm, I was really listening closely to creating a firm I wanted to hire and that my friends and colleagues would want to hire because we were going to have an impact on their business. So you're really leveraging the um, a listening tour of your customers. Is there any other ways that you when you look at real chemistry and their suite of services, as you have to continue to innovate, how do you continue to evolve and stay ahead of the curve and continuously adapt to meeting the needs and what the market demands? Well, you have to be nimble, right? You have to be service oriented. You have to be listening constantly to what the customer needs and what, um, you know, the market's telling you, right? How are people receiving information? What are the latest and greatest platforms and technologies, you know, that people listen to? I mean, in the time I've developed the firm, you know, we moved from, you know, AOL and Yahoo to Google and, um, you know, all the search engines and Amazon and, 
you know, Facebook and Twitter really were a glimmer in God's eye when, you know, I started, we weren't even really there yet. Um, it's incredible to, to think that in just the 20 ish years that I've developed this, we've seen, you know, the rise, fall, rise again of, you know, lots of platforms, um, and, and new things, uh, every day. So it's been our job to stay at the edge of that. So it's not only technology we develop, but how you partner with the technology that's out there and leverage that technology to the maximum. And I think we were early adopters of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, our social and influence teams and media teams here have always, you know, kind of stayed one step ahead of what's next. And I think that's made a huge difference in how we apply our data and analytics approaches to those platforms. And as you're growing the firm's capabilities, every time you make a commitment that, you know, we're going to get into this space, what must come across your mind is this concept of build versus buy, because the market needs it now. And how long would it take to upskill or redeploy talent to building out that capability versus buying a firm that is all they do that capability? How do you identify the right companies to acquire when acquisition or buy is the path that you're going to direct the company to take? And how do you ensure that there's a really smooth integration process of that business into the real chemistry mothership? Well, the best way to ensure a smooth integration is to, you know, partner and or buy current partners. So the best experience I've had is buying companies I already knew. And what I was, we were already sitting next to at the client or the client told us, these are the greatest folks. They totally are like you guys. You should, you know, you should partner and or buy them. Those are the ones that tend to do the best. Um, you know, I would say that in the cases of you know, anywhere from Swoop and even to some degree, 21 grams, you know, just because we were sitting next to some of these guys at clients already, and we knew we shared similar values and ideals and principles that was going to make, you know, entry a lot smoother. A lot of times when it's something that's in a buying process and or you're trying to fill a gap, Um, but you sit down and culturally you don't want the same things. You don't think about things the same way. Uh, it's not going to work as well. So I don't really believe there's ever exact smooth transition in any of these things. And I'm kind of a tension addict. People will tell you that I, I really like tension. If I, if there isn't any, I kind of tend to create it because I believe it creates either chaos or diamonds, but you won't get diamonds unless there's some tension. So I think you're looking for groups that come in, get you to think differently, act differently with the client, show up differently with the client, and all that actually can ultimately help you um, advance, you know, that that acquisition faster within your system. Um, But that cultural fit, that similar mindset, is so critical at the outset. And nine times out of 10, the way I did it was if a client asked me three times, you know, if we did a certain thing, then I went searching for it, or I asked them who they would suggest we buy. Interesting. 
take the where there's already synergy at the client side um, and help bring it in house. And through all of this inorganic and organic growth, you know, obviously you've achieved this amazing achievement of 550 million in revenue. My audience loves to hear from great business leaders, like let's let's peel it back. Let's really understand what happened. What were those key decisions? What were those big milestones or a business decision to pitch someone or to fire a client or to hire the right person? What are some of the key things as you reflect back on this great career that significantly contributed to the success to get to 550? Well, I think it was a few things, but I think ultimately I tell people all the time that focus was a real big, um, you know, issue for us. And when we finally decided, you know, biopharma and healthcare would be the sole focus, while certainly engaging with non-health clients absolutely helped us learn the ropes of Twitter, Facebook, Google all of that, you know, I think that was critical to work with those clients and understand how you reach a consumer. But the regulated healthcare market is a special sauce in and of itself. And focusing deep into that and applying what we learned in that space was a critical decision that had to be made, you know, probably midway in the journey. And that didn't mean we weren't going to have non-health people coming into the system and helping us continue to adapt our healthcare clients' mindsets and approaches with a consumer headset. But I think ultimately that was one of the number one difference makers. And then what I often say to folks, and I've posted about this and written and talked about it, is people drive the whole thing, right? And that's people on the client side and that's the people we hire. You change the culture by who you hire. So there were a couple key hires in the early years. You know, I know, I think, you know, my colleague, Jen Gottlieb. Um, and, you know, I could go through, I used to say it, you could put a face on all of our hockey stick growth because it was the people who made it. And there were so many people who've had input and and brought something different and special to this place. And then they brought their people and their clients over. So you know, you totally change your culture by who you hire and also who you work with. And you talked about, you know, working and partnering with the right clients. That's a real client selection and curation is critical. And you have to be working with clients that want to innovate, that can tolerate, you know, some of the experimentation that goes on. But also, ultimately, you have to be responsive to the client's asks, needs, and desires. It's a client, the client comes first. So putting that client first, putting that client at the center, but not doing everything the client wanted, um, you know, being in more of a partnership mode had a big impact, which is why I never really thought of ourselves as a agency. I always thought of ourselves as a consultancy and a partnership, a business partnership versus, you know, a vendor. And, you know, there's a lot of positives, you know, putting a a face to each hockey stick moment. These are all these great positive moves. But of course, we love to learn from our own mistakes and hearing the stories of other, I don't know if they're mistakes or curveballs or bumps in the roads. Let's just call them significant challenges. As you went from Weisscom to real chemistry, 
what were some of the more significant challenges you encountered? And was there a constant theme of how you overcame those challenges? Well, I think, you know, this company, like a lot of companies, but I'll just speak for mine and the one that I helped develop here um, and continue to help develop. It's just a series of well-made mistakes or mistakes well-made. You really have like to, I used to talk about the concept of when you go to start skiing and learning how to ski, if you don't fall down and get snow, you know, in your butt crack, I used to say, and that got some laughs. But the point is, if that's not happening, you're not pushing yourself or your people aren't pushing themselves to learn how to navigate new terrain right? Or new areas. You're never going to get good at powder skiing if you don't go into powder and you're never going to get good at, you know, the steeper skiing if you don't learn how to do that. And it does mean you're going to probably fall down. And, you know, I think to keep navigating the heights we want to go to, that does put you, sometimes those falls can be fine. And sometimes you have to spend time recovering from those falls. And, you know, but looking at that um, is a really critical way to evolve your business. And I think we were never afraid ultimately to, you know, what I've learned and I've seen a lot of people posting about this one, you can't helicopter parent the people at your company. They have to hit the wall themselves to learn it. Now, sometimes we don't have enough time for that, but if you don't let them do it, and by the way, that means you've got to hire well because you've got to hire well and get out of their way. And these are all things we've all heard a million times, um, you know, from smarter people than ourselves. But that's the key. You've got to hire people smarter than yourselves. You can't be afraid that somebody's going to, you know, outpace you potentially. But if you curate this whole thing right, you know, I've never had an issue with people who want to push up against it or I, you know, yes, people are not very helpful to business growth. So I think at the end of the day, we've had to withstand, you know, some difficult, you know, personal situations that ultimately I think were good for both parties, um, either stepping up or out. And, and that's what I've seen as the theme, you know, over and over again. Um, and then with clients, it's all about how you make up for that mistake. They, they don't tend to hold those against you as long as you're very good at being responsive and dealing with the mistake quickly and comprehensively. Great answer. Um, you know, you talk a bunch about how you give uh, some of your talented staff uh, autonomy and let them fail. What are the key leadership principles that guided you through some of the firm's core transformation and those growth periods? Well, we had a series, I, I would say, of um, you know evolution around um, the uh, discussions of values and and how we approach you know values, and I'd say they changed and evolved over time. It wasn't always the same exact same set of values. We always had to revisit that with the new teams. Um, but I felt like always revisiting that probably every three years. We didn't really ultimately change the foundation 
but you had to get everybody on the same page. And a lot of times that involved a bit of a rebrand and a refresh because we were growing at certain times, you know, 80, 70, 100% year over year. So that is a completely different company. And when you add new companies in, like you've mentioned, we did. I mean, we added as many as three in our first private equity partnership and, you know, 10 or 12 now in the second one with New Mountain. You're, you're really changing. Um, it could even be every year. The company's a new company every year, and you have to recognize that you can't operate on the old principles. So I, someone used to say you can't, um, you know, really design the future with the mindset of the past. And so, you all, you know, it's not this, well, this is how we've always done it. You have to revisit this is how we're going to do it to get to that next level. And so I always saw that as a three-year planning cycle approximately. And in doing that, we were able to ground ourselves in aligned principles and KPIs. And once you align everyone around those things, everyone can kind of run more or less independently after that, as long as you're not changing the rules every month or quarter which you've got to constantly um, check yourself on. So there were a set of values that we had. I created a video that was kind of fun back in the day. And those have evolved slightly again, um, but they really do come down to one major point, which is make it happen. Do what you say you're going to do. That is the ultimate follow through. Um, and, you know, a, an ethos of, I would say convening and collaborating that is un, you know, sort of unrelenting with both your client and yourself. So that and and a dedication to quality and business outcomes. So again, without going into the details of our each and every iteration of those values, if you don't have those shared values and shared key performance indicators, you know, it's very hard to operate for growth. We both manage large groups of really talented branders and writers and all these talented folks, and they take on all sorts of companies' branding challenges. But in my experience, when we turn the table on ourselves and say, let's rebrand ourselves, let's do a new visual, let's do a new digital platform, etc., it's very different for experts to brand themselves. Uh, we've been able to succeed through that and through my career, but it, it feels very different than when doing it for an, an end client. How do you approach the rebranding process as you went from Weisscom to WCG, then to W2O Group, and then finally to Real Chemistry? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because it'll help me answer the prior question probably more precisely, which is that... The rebranding process isn't rebranding. You know, it's reimagining your future together. And I think, you know, it gives everyone a common vision, voice, direction. Without that, of course, it's very hard to go anywhere. If, I used to say, and still do, if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to get there? And so a rebrand, you know, should be a way to discuss an aligned go-to-market strategy, an aligned, you know, sales approach, an aligned, you know, customer engagement 
approach and then a dedication to a terrific NPS score at the end of the day. That's what we all have to be in the field we're in. Um, what role will technology and data play? Will it drive everything? You know, where does it fit and sit in the whole um, ecosystem of what you're doing? But people do not know how to behave, I don't think, without a strong brand. And that means buyers don't know how to buy it. And, you know, marketers don't know how to continue to sell it, um, if that makes sense. So I've always felt branding and brand is, you know, maybe that's the word for it, but it's ultimately the, it's a business design principle. And that's how we've always gone into it. We don't just do it for the logo and the look and the feel. It's about the essence and the direction of a company. And, and in your journey, it was evolution, 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 and then revolution with this completely new name of real chemistry, which to me, I hear chemistry between client and talent, the chemistry between all the talent on the agency side or the consulting firm side. Um, chemistry feels very healthcare sounding. How does this new name reflect the company's mission, values? Tell us more about this intriguing name. Well, I think again, you know, as a as a holding, um, you know, uh, sort of vessel for the future, we had to bring together what a dozen different cultures and groups that had been operating as independent companies for many years. We had to bring them together, you know, under one set of principles, yet also unlock their entrepreneurialism. So. You know, I think we looked backwards to see what worked, but we were also thinking what can work for people going forward who are living in this ecosystem and, you know, how can it continue to thrive uh, in and under one ideal? And that concept of real chemistry kept coming back and coming back that if you weren't in sync with your, you know, uh, client. And if you weren't finding the right bond points, you know, we t kept coming back to that. There needed to be certain bonding points, which is, of course, a big principle of, of chemistry. Um, but that chemistry is fundamental and foundational in all biopharma, uh, you know, manufacturing and, and product development. It's, it's so, such a basic principle of what we do that it just seemed you know, obviously synergistic with our client set, but also, you know, really um, a good way for people to understand how I believed and we believed you would get the best outcome, which was better together through these bonds. Jim, you got a lot of great sayings as I've gotten to know you over the last year. And one that really has always stuck to me has been when you say communications is leadership and leadership is communications, how do you effectively communicate your vision and strategy to your team and to the clients throughout the firm's constant evolution? Well, there's a lot of ways. I mean, doing conversations like this, Jason, so thank you again for having me. Um, this kind of thing I do purposefully because I want to share it to my audiences, so they have context. A lot of times people don't have the history or context about how anything 
formed or is formed or why we exist. And when I think about this, you know, ultimately why we exist is to help, you know, at the end of the day in our business to help patients connect with the right treatments at the right time and, you know, and help families get through, you know, what are usually pretty big, high stakes health issues. Um, You know, in some cases, it's not as high stakes, but how do they get to the best treatment um, at the right time, at the best price point? All of that is a really important and I would say, you know, arguably noble cause. And I think having that cause and having that, you know, um, I think positive, uh, you know, vision that everyone can rally around. Uh, is a really important thing um, that I've found you've got to constantly communicate. You know, people forget because some people will say, well, I'm here for my bonus or I'm here for my, um, you know, career next step and all of that, right? And all that's valid. They can be reasons that people exist at a company. Um, But I always think it's important that if you're not regrounding both the client and us in the shared mission and vision and context of why we exist, then I think that's when things go sideways or downward, you know, it, it, and that is communications has to be constant and consistent. Mixed messaging can move, you know, can create chaos. And as I told you, I like tension but we don't want tension that creates chaos. We want tension that creates diamonds. And, you know, we have to keep coming back to a set of communications and contextualization that makes everybody, you know, go in that right direction and not, you know, all over the place that creates that chaos. And you bring up diamonds and you've, you have a, a great collection of diamond clients. Uh, Real Chemistry's client list includes the top 30 pharma companies in the world. And my audience really wants to learn from successful winners like yourself. What are the strategies you employ to win these customers? And then how do you keep them? These are really high profile clients, so much competition trying to take these accounts. How do you win them and how do you keep them? Well, I think you win them um, a number of formulaic ways that everybody probably applies. But I think most of them are established through long-term relationship. I mean, I think, you know, relationship is everything and listening to what that client wants and, and operating under what I would call client centricity. You can't forget who, you know, ultimately pays the bill. So you have to listen to what they want. And sometimes you miss the mark. Um, But it can't be just your approach. You know, so it's one of these things where I've said, if you're just going in fresh and the first time you've met this client is in the pitch, and unfortunately, the first time you've met some of the people on your team is in the pitch, we are already behind. You've got to know this client intimately as you go into it. So I think, you know, you get them and keep them by being in the industry. So as you see now, you know, I'm on the board of the Cancer Research Institute and the board of the 
an advisory board of the American Cancer Society's Bright Edge Fund. And, you know, I'm now involved with the FNIH. I mean, for me, it's been critical to be in the fiber and the form of our industry. You got to really love healthcare and biopharma, I think, to serve it in the best possible way. And I think you've got to know this industry and know the customer and know them not just, you know, for their business. And in many ways, you have to know their business better than they know it. And once you can provide that, I think a lot of things really go into motion. And that's how you keep those clients. So it's got to be talent and people that get this industry, get this business and wake up in the morning acting like it's their business. Definitely getting people to act like it's their own business is huge. I've seen over the years. Just a couple closing questions. The firm, your firm's journey from Weisscom to Real Chemistry, it's a remarkable story of transformation and growth. Looking back, what are you most proud of? What lessons do you think others could learn from your experience? growing from a one-person company to a global leader? I think, you know, the things I'm most proud of are really the the campaigns or the, you know, things we worked on that saved lives. I was talking about it this morning with my wife. You know, I love this business and still do because what we do directly impacts people in ways that are often matters of life and death. Um, you know, if it's, it's, you know, all the things I think when I look across the businesses we've helped build over the years from, you know, impacting lives of people with cancer or, you know, people faced with, you know, life-threatening heart conditions and, you know, rare diseases where children are affected, um, you know, you can change the trajectory of a person's life by them being able to find your information readily and easily um, online or through an informational webinar. All of this stuff, I think, is really, really important. And I think you um, sometimes can forget that when we're in the day-to-day throw of, you know, meeting a quarterly number or hitting a KPI. It's like, okay, but are the the businesses we're working on, you know, making a massive difference? That's what I'm most proud of, you know, that we've saved lives, we've changed policy, we've helped advance, um, you know, areas of medicine. Again, you know, I feel very proud of the fact that we've launched some of the first antibodies, immunotherapies, um, minimally invasive surgery options, early detection, of cancer products, you know, all of which when we started, nobody would have given a plug nickel to succeed and we were not getting immediate traction on those. So it's about staying perseverant with our clients who've invested so much um, to deliver those to the world. That's, that's something to be proud of. That's awesome. And I know there's folks that are jotting down notes. They're waiting for that, that golden advice and they're all trying to build and scale successful companies to all the aspiring entrepreneurs out there looking for a great piece of advice on how to scale a successful marketing communications firm. What would be the number one piece of advice to give to them? 
Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of really amazing lessons that I've learned, but I really think it comes down to always that very simple one as you're scaling. You, you absolutely cannot do this alone. And you have to find ways, you know, as you continue to grow to make room for new talent, people, approaches. That is you know, and that is not easy to do. Um, and, and one of the ways I've always sort of helped, I got a piece of advice long ago that helps you, you kind of got to let go of the outcome. You know, you can't have the outcome. You can have an outline of what you want it to look like, but you got to let go of the outcome and let things happen and formulate and have the patience to do that. Because sometimes for a person like me and many entrepreneurs, we like to push an outcome and we will probably never stop. We are generally relentless, right? And some might say fearless. I think we're, we're not really good, successful entrepreneurs have healthy fear, right? And, and we're still acting like we're being chased, but, you know, and we have a lot to prove and they're chip on the shoulder and there's all those things you hear again and again. But ultimately, you've got to have this capability of letting go of the outcome and letting creativity and innovation and, um, you, know, c- you know, kind of collaborative uh, magic, real chemistry, if you will, happen. And that, yeah. I think, is, is, is really the key. There's those words, let go of the outcome. Great advice. Really appreciate your generous time with us today, Jim, on today's show of Digital Doorways. Um, We will definitely keep in touch. And uh, to my audience, um, thank you so much for your generous time listening to today's uh, guest, Jim Weiss of Real Chemistry. And look forward to the next episode where we'll be bringing on the Chief Communications Officer from Boeing, who will be talking about what it's like when your number one product, the 787, is forced to the ground. Thank you, everyone, and look forward to uh, presenting you with the next episode.